Uh, let's open up to Matthew chapter 17. <clears throat> Matthew 17. And as you're opening to that chapter, let me give you the outline for tonight. <clears throat> Verses 1 to 13, we are looking at the Mount of Transfiguration. That's 1 to 13, Mount of Transfiguration. Part 2, verses 14 to 23, man with a troubled son. Man with a troubled son. And then the last part, verses 24 to 27, money for the tribute. Money for the tribute. So Mount of Transfiguration, man with a troubled son, money for the tribute. All right, so chapter 17 and verse 1, it says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. Now bear in mind, as you read this verse, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he did not put the chapter numbers into his writing. He didn't put the verse numbers in. The chapters came, uh, the numbers for the chapters came in, about, in the 1200s. And then the verse numberings came in the 1500s. So you, you do need to read these things consecutively. Jesus was just talking about how some would not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The next thing Matthew tells us about is this event, this glorious event on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, I want you to hold Matthew 17 and turn over to Luke chapter 9. And we are going to compare <clears throat> the information we have in Luke 9 when, um, when you read in Mark's Gospel, I believe it's Mark chapter, is it Mark 9? Yes, it's in Mark 9. Uh, Mark and Matthew are very close in this. Mark does offer a couple details as well that are unique, but the, the Gospel of Luke offers several details about this story that you don't have in the other two synoptic Gospels. So I want you to see the timing of it. In Matthew 17, 1, it says, After six days... They go up the mountain. Luke 9, verse 28. And it came to pass about and eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and James and John and went up into a mountain to pray. And then he's transfigured. So some people have seen the, the uh, different time frames mentioned and said this is some sort of a mistake. However, if you just look at, at how each one of these uh, verses are worded, after six days, about an eight days. So I think the most logical conclusion would be that it was seven days, right? After six and about eight. But neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke, none of them are trying to offer a precise uh, set of days. They say after this or about that. So the timing is really non con, it's, it's of no consequence to the heart of this story, but I am wanting to point out to you. Uh, what, how you would deal with the difference that you read. Now continue to hold Luke 9. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. But flip back to Matthew 17. Verse 2, it says, And was transfigured before them. Now the word transfigured has a very, a very interesting Greek root word. It's, it's metamorpho or metamorphoso or something like that. But uh, forgive me, the ending of it I'm forgetting, but... Uh, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. And it's actually the same word in Romans 12, verse 2, where it talks about be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Same Greek word is used there to be transformed. 
this metamorphosis takes place, this complete change. So in verse 2, was transfigured before them. So completely changed. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. I find that interesting. Jesus, uh, he's known to these men in his earthly form, and now he's giving these three men a little glimpse of heaven and his glorified appearance. And when he's transfigured, even his clothes get transfigured, which I find interesting. Now, this might be a very, very side note. But when the rapture happens, the, the way most artists draw this and the way I've heard it explained is our clothing is left behind. Now, it's not to say that we're naked in the rapture. We would assume that we are clothed in white linen, right? Because the book of Revelation does speak of such a garment. But I, I wonder if our raiment doesn't also get some sort of, of change when we go up. I, I don't know if verse 2 would help prove anything like that. But his raiment, whatever Jesus was wearing, it seems as if, if I read the story correctly, his, his raiment was transfigured as well. You can compare it in Luke 9, 29. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. So Jesus has this, the appearance that he will have at his second coming. That's, that's how he now looks. In uh, verse 2, Matthew 17 and 2, he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. Now, you read in Revelation 1 that his face has this appearance. In Malachi 4, verse 2, Jesus is called or referred to as the Son of Righteousness, but it's S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. And then in Psalm 19, we read about how the S-U-N, but referring to the, to the bright ball of fire in the sky, how it runs a race every day, and it is called a bridegroom, which is very interesting that it's referred to like that. And here's Jesus, his face shining like the sun. Now, verse 3, it says, And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Now, you can only imagine what a sight that must have been. Here you have Moses and Elijah that have appeared. Now, how did, how did the apostles, Peter, James, and John, know that it was Moses and Elijah? I can only assume, right, I mean, you know, were they wearing a name badge that said Moses or something? Was it on their shirt or, you know, embroidered on there? How did they know? I can only assume by the conversation that was taking place. I believe that those two men did appear. But if you want to think about this allegorically, you have Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament, on the top of that mount. And then you have the law and the prophets, Right? respectively, Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets are represented. The law and the prophets bear witness to Jesus. Now, look in Luke 9. It says in verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that's information that is unique to the Gospel of Luke. We don't have that part of the story in Matthew, which is why I want you to see this. So the law and the prophets bear witness to the decease, to the death and burial of, of Christ. Now this is interesting because I think beyond just the historical fact that Moses and Elijah, those two men were talking with Jesus, we have the law and the prophets bearing witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 
to what Jesus accomplished at his first coming. This is something that the Jews missed, right? As a nation, even to this day, the Jews do not see the Messiah as somebody that is going to suffer and die and resurrect. They don't see that in the Old Testament. But this conversation that only a few men were privy to, it shows that Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, were very aware of it. Now, while you're in Luke 9, let's keep reading there. Verse 32, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. Now again, only in Luke's gospel do you find this. Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep. Guys, think about that for a moment. Jesus is transfigured. His raiment is white and glistering. Moses and Elijah show up. I don't know at what point the apostles woke up and realized what was happening, but they are missing out. Right? For, for a time, they were missing out on one of the greatest events in the life of Christ. I mean, that's subjective, I, I understand, but this is such a unique experience, and so few people have been invited to this, and they're asleep for it. And I want, there's some good preaching in that, right? I wonder how many times God shows up and does something powerful, whether it's in a church service, in a Bible study, any situation, right? I mean, you, you could make a long list of possibilities where God could show up and manifest His presence, and we are sleeping through it. We're not paying attention. Now, Peter, eventually, he does wake up. You can see, let's continue in Luke, and then we'll come back to Matthew. It says, They were heavy with sleep, verse 32, And when they were awake, they saw His glory and the two men that stood with Him. And it came to pass, as they departed from Him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what He said. Now again, that that last statement, not knowing what He said. And Mark's Gospel says, for He didn't know what to say. Come back to Matthew 17. Only in Luke well, Luke and Mark, rather, we, we have that information of Peter waking up and then blurting this statement out. Let's make tabernacles. I think there's just a, there's a very practical reason that he says it. He doesn't want this experience to end. He, he, he arrived late to the event. He's missed some of it, most of it. And now he doesn't want this to end. Let, let's stick around. Let's make it last longer. We'll build tabernacles so that this meeting, this divine meeting can continue. Lo and behold, it was the end of the meeting. It was over. Time has passed. Isn't that, you understand how this could lend itself to some solid preaching, how we respond to God doing something special. So in verse 4, Matthew 17, verse 4, it says, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. So that information we've already read in Luke. I do think there might be something almost prophetical in this statement. I don't think Peter meant it as such. Right? And Mark and Luke pointed out Peter didn't, he didn't know what to say, so he blurted that out. I wonder, however, if there's some hidden, hidden prophetical truth to it. Because when you study the Feast of Tabernacles from the Old Testament... There seems to be a strong connection between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Second Coming of Christ. Now that's something we're not going to take time to explore right now. 
But that, that connection, I must admit, it seems to be there. I wonder if, if, not that Peter intended it to be this way, but if there's a bit of a hint or a nod or a small clue that Jesus in this glorified form coming in his kingdom, right? This, the power and, and glory of his kingdom. Moses and Elijah, I've shown you guys before at the end of Malachi, there's a couple verses that mention Moses and Elijah coming before, or at least Elijah is, is prophesied to come before the day of the Lord. You're going to see that the disciples understood this and were thinking about that prophecy from Malachi. So even though Peter didn't intend it, maybe there's a little more to that statement with the tabernacles. But verse 5, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now a cloud by itself is not bright, but when you have the sun shining very strongly behind it, of course, it can illuminate the cloud to a certain extent. Um, this is God, I think, just hiding his face, so to speak. God's presence was so real on that mount, he had to cover himself. As he spoke, otherwise the, these men couldn't have handled it. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then this admonition, Hear ye him. Again, that lends itself to great preaching, right? The world, if, if we, yea, if the world could get a hold of that statement... God says, listen to what my son has to say. I'm happy with him. You should be happy with him. Now, John the Baptist heard this uh, at, the, at the baptism of Jesus. This is now obviously a separate occasion. The apostles probably heard about what happened at, at the baptism. Now they're getting to hear this personally. Now, this is a truth that they already knew, that, that Jesus was God's son. But to hear God say it, to confirm it. And God will do this. God will teach you something and then confirm it to you and then later on remind you of it. And who knows, however many times it's important and necessary for us to be reminded of that truth, to drive it home. That's just how God operates. God does when necessary, right? Not vain repetition, but He does repeat the important parts. In verse 6, And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Now, they were not slain in the Spirit. Some people would read that event into this. It doesn't say they fainted or fell over in that way. They fell on their face because they were sore afraid. They are in awe of God's presence. So the idea that they went to the ground is just out of respect for the situation. They didn't lose control of themselves. Verse 7, And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. I think this is a healthy approach to it. Right? Sometimes the presence of God can get so, I want to use the word thick. It can get so real. The cloud. You read about this in the Old Testament, how the cloud would move into a room and the, and the priests were no longer able to stand in that room. They'd have to go out. Sometimes the presence of God gets so real, it, it literally makes you weak in the knee. There's a story of this in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel has an encounter with what appears to be, uh, at the least, an angel, if, if not a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Christ. 
whoever it was that he met with, it, it was this this being was sent by God's command, and Daniel likewise went to his knees and lost strength in his body. He just couldn't, in in his natural being, couldn't uh, bring himself to face this this uh, divine presence. You need God almost, well, you do need God to come in and give you permission to look up. Say, it's all right. I've, you, you're right where you need to be. You've done nothing wrong, but you can look up. We can, we can talk. We can fellowship. And when you read Daniel's story, that angel, that being, put power into Daniel so that he could talk with the Lord. I've, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but there's been plenty of times where I didn't know what to say to God. Either my heart was broken or uh, you know, something was going on or my heart was so filled with thankfulness. I just didn't have words. I didn't feel fit to be in God's presence. And, and I needed the Spirit of God to tap me on the shoulder and say, it, it's all right, you're allowed to be here. You, you can talk. We're listening. And what, a, what a blessed experience that is. Arise and be not afraid. Verse 8, and when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. So it appears that the story, right, we, we know from reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Moses and Elijah had already gone. But the apostles, bear in mind that there's this bright shining as the sun from Jesus' face. Then there's the voice speaking from the cloud. All these things are happening kind of at once. Peter's blurting something out. So they're not aware of the fact that Jesus has, has morphed back into his earthly appearance. Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud, we can say, has passed. And there's Jesus only. Which is plenty. Right? Plenty. But every now and then he just shows himself for who he, who he truly is. I want to say truly. He was truly in that earthly appearance as well, but shows himself in all his glory. That's a good way to say it. In verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man. I heard a preacher once use this verse to prohibit television. He said, The Bible says, Tell the vision to no man. So, television to no man. <laughs> Obviously, that's just bad English mixed with an agenda. But... It may not be horrible advice, but in any event, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now here we go again with Jesus saying, you've experienced this great thing, don't tell anyone. Why is that? If they go and start telling people that Moses and Elijah has appeared, then the general idea that's going to circulate in the public is going to match the response of the disciples, as you're going to see in a few verses. It will, let's just read verse 10. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? They were aware of the fact that Malachi 4 verse 5 talks about Elijah coming and turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. So if, if Elijah has just shown up, does this mean then that we are about to see the kingdom restored to Israel and all of the prophecies about the Messiah conquering the Gentiles and establishing the Jewish kingdom worldwide, is that now going to come to pass? If the apostles start spreading this story, not only them, but the general 
the general thought is going to be the Messiah is about to take over. And there's a good chance that this will stir up the people to fight against the Romans and try to take the kingdom by force, and Jesus doesn't get to go to the cross as scheduled, as planned. So just like we've looked at before, it falls under the same heading that Jesus knows the overall plan. He sees the big picture. He needs to fulfill prophecy. He needs to get to the cross. And this could offer a, a large distraction if, if word of this gets out. So he says, don't tell anyone until after I've risen again. Now also think of this. Besides the point about Elijah being there and the, the commotion that it would cause, how do you verify that story? The apostles, these three men could go out, this inner circle, right? There, there's the 12 apostles, and these three men represent the inner circle of those apostles. If they go out and start telling people this story, unlike a lot of Jesus' other miracles that were done publicly, many people saw them, you know, you could go back and verify. You can't go back and verify this. This is just Peter, James, and John telling the story. So you need Jesus to rise from the dead and his resurrection then validates such stories, right? It, it would add credence to it. So verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall, notice the future, shall first come and restore all things. So Jesus is acknowledging the prophecy from Malachi. Verse 12, But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. We would say what, whatever they wanted. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Now just come back a couple pages. Look at Matthew 11, verse number 14. Matthew 11 and 14. Jesus was talking about John the Baptist in this passage. And he says in verse 14, And if ye will receive it. Now, the ye, the yella, he's referring to the nation of Israel. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. So at that point, the, 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 in the chronology, in the timing of Jesus' life and his ministry, there was still time for Israel as a whole, corporately, to receive Jesus as the Messiah, and then John the Baptist fulfills the role of Elijah. Now, by the time you get to Matthew 17, that opportunity has passed. So that's why Jesus, it's worded a little differently. Back in Matthew 17, verse 11, Elias truly shall first come. So they, they, they killed John the Baptist. They have not received Jesus as the Messiah. So even though John did what he needed to do to fulfill those prophecies and the role of the forerunner, that was prophesied. Based on the decision of the Jews, now that prophecy will be again fulfilled with Elijah coming during what we know as the tribulation time. But, verse 12, Elias has come already in, in the person of John the Baptist, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. So John experienced a martyr's death, a wrongful death. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Jesus also suffered a martyr's death, a wrongful death. Now, this obviously doesn't indicate that Jesus would experience the same manner of death. John was beheaded, Jesus was crucified, but 
that they, they were both put to death for similar reasons. Um, envy and hatred, persecution, martyr, that, that type of thing. Verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. They were able to put all of that together. Verse 14, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying... So now just picture it in your mind. Peter, James, John, Jesus. They've been on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now the other disciples, apostles, wherever they were in a different place, they have been dealing with, let's call it, everyday everyday uh, responsibilities of the ministry. And now they got a, they got a sticky situation here. There came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. Now, lunatic, we use that word today. I don't know how prevalent it is here in South Africa amongst uh, Afrikaners or, or any other language for that matter. I don't know if you have words that, that are equal to or translate directly with lunatic. But the word lunatic, you can see in there lunar, lunar. That's a word that refers to the moon. A lunatic is somebody who is moon struck. They, they, they tick what makes them tick? The moon. They're, they're moonstruck. Lunatic. So the word lunatic, we use it very, in a very derogative way these days. You're a lunatic. We, that's kind of our way to say you're an idiot, you're crazy. Now, in the, in the days of biblical times, when that word was circulating, and in the time even when this was translated into English, uh, lunatic wasn't as derogatory as it is now, but it was almost a medical type term to refer to somebody who was not in control of their mental capacities, right? They, they had lost their mind. They were crazy, right? But it was more of, a, of an official diagnosis, whereas we use it just to hurt somebody's feelings. For he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. This is an extreme case. Not everybody that is filled with an unclean spirit will go through these motions. Please understand that. There are various levels to being filled and possessed of devils. You need not think that everybody that has an unclean spirit, they're going to have their head spinning around and spewing green vomit. And, you know, maybe you've been watching too many poltergeist movies and that kind of stuff. But there are cases where things get very severe. We studied already one in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where you had those two men, the maniacs of, uh, of Gadara, and nobody could tame them. They ran around naked and hung out around the tombs and people chained them down. They'd break the chains. Those are severe cases, as is this one. Some, this kid is falling into the fire and into the water often. So he's just going along, boom, and he flops down loses control of, of, his, of, of his good senses and boom, into the fire, boom, into the water. Now listen, it's very much like a, a little boy to bump his knee, you know, scrape his knee, fall down, scrape an elbow. These things are going to happen. The, those things we, we expect naturally. This is not natural. To often fall into fire and water, right, that's not natural. That's not natural. 
Verse 16, And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. So this is more than just a misbehaving child. Although I do suspect some of some, some children that have behavior issues have probably got some spiritual things going on as well. But this is curious. Why, why, would the, why would this young boy, why would this son, and I say young boy, I, I, he's still living at home, so I don't know exactly how young he was, but here's this boy with these problems. Why? Why would, this, why would the devils be bothering him? Well, depending on his age, if he's a teenager, there's a very good chance he's made some decisions that have allowed these unclean spirits to affect him. And listen, whoever you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. You're, a teenager can certainly be opening himself up for spiritual trouble if he yields to these unclean influences. What if he's a young child? You know, we're talking six, seven, eight, that, that type of age range. And he's not really actively seeking out to do wicked things of that nature. Even within the home, mom and dad can create the wrong spiritual atmosphere and it can affect the children. We're not going to go long into that conversation, but it is something to consider. Now, I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Well, the disciples... Generally speaking, they, if somebody has an unclean spirit, Jesus had given them power to cast out devils, Matthew 10, verse 1. So this surely caught Jesus' disciples by surprise. Why are we not able to help? And you're going to see that they did, they did recognize uh, their failure in this. Verse 17, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation. Now notice how he addresses the entire generation. I don't think that this following or the following statement can be leveled only at the dad or only at the boy. Maybe he's a teenager and it would apply to him. It, it seems to include even his disciples, the way it's worded. But it certainly is true of the entire generation as a whole. O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? How long do I have to put up with you? Bring him hither to me. Bring him here. So Jesus, it sounds like he's disappointed that his disciples didn't know what to do with this situation. They should have known by this point what to do next. What do we do with these difficult cases? I think this gives me an opportunity to, to mention something as it pertains to the ministry. There are a lot of folks that have a desire to minister to others, to do something of an eternal value, but they feel unprepared. And forgive me, I'm probably preaching to the choir. I see on the screen there, there's nine different people tuned in. I say people, not nine different what would I say, IP addresses that have logged on to this channel. I don't know how many people are actually watching. You're probably, the ex you're probably not, uh, I'm probably not saying this to you, but I know it's true. I'm, I'm talking to this entire generation. People want to minister, but 
they, they don't know how. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to answer the questions. Listen, if you're just starting, if you've just recently been saved, then we don't expect you to know. You need to learn. But can you see in what Jesus said here? He's been walking with these guys for about three years now. They should have known how to handle some things, even these tough things. He says, guys, I'm going to be going away soon. Jesus sounds disappointed. Verse 18, Jesus, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child, I see child, that's not a teenager, is it? The child was cured from that very hour. So after these, this devil went out, and I've seen, I've witnessed this before. It takes a minute. That person has to physically recuperate just for a little bit, get, at least catch his or her breath. So that's why I, would, it, it, I think it's worded very smartly from that very hour. The devil went out, but physically he needs to recover just a little before he can get up and go. Verse 19, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? What did we do wrong? That's a good response. There you go. That's the right way to handle it. They didn't, they didn't take offense to what Jesus said in verse 17. They didn't take offense. They realized, man, we still... We should have known, but fill us in now. Okay, we messed up. Tell us where we messed up. That's the right attitude. Verse 20, And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief... You see why I think the disciples were partially targeted in verse 17 because of your unbelief how did this how where did their unbelief come from here comes this man with a troubled son disciples please help my boy i've heard that you can you can help they pray over him and usually what they're used to the devil goes out the unclean spirits are cast out all is well praise the lord don't forget, we did it in the name of Jesus. On you go. But this time, they pray over this child and the devil doesn't go out. It doesn't work. And I believe right there is where the, where the unbelief kicks in. I don't think they initially unbelieved. But after things didn't work out the way they assumed it would or the way they had seen it work in the past, all of a the sudden their faith is shook. Again, I see a lot of application to what goes on in the body of Christ today. People attempt to do something for the Lord. It doesn't work out the way they want. Whether that's preaching, whether that's a ministry of some other sort. And they think, man, I thought that would go better. I thought I could overcome that. I thought I could achieve that. I thought that, you know... With God, nothing's impossible, yet I di it didn't work. And their faith gets shook. They say, oh man, maybe, maybe the things that God told me, maybe the things I read in His Word, maybe they're not true. And faith gets shook. Jesus goes on to say, For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed. Now, let's remember where Jesus previously mentioned a mustard seed, right? In the parables, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is likened to mustard seed, which is the smallest among seeds, but when it is planted, it springs up into, this, into one of the largest 
trees, right? The potential. All the things that could come of faith being placed in the right in the right thing. If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, what is faith? Some people understand the word faith as the ability to believe. And sometimes that is how the word faith is used. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith is not the ability to believe necessarily, but what we believe. What do we believe? We believe what God said. And we believe we have the revealed words of God in the Bible. They're preserved for us. So what we need to do is take what He has said and hang on to that. Jesus told these disciples, I give you power to cast out unclean spirits. Now, it, they prayed over this child and it didn't work. And then all of a sudden their faith was gone. Unbelief. So Jesus reminds them, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. I have, I have heard interesting stories about people praying in faith and seeing mountains move. I, I heard of a church once that needed... They, they built a, a building but they didn't realize they needed to build a car park with it. And the city commission gave them only a certain amount of time to get this car park built, but they didn't have the money, they didn't have the time, and there was a mountain standing right where they needed that car park. And the, the details of the story are a little fuzzy in my head at the moment, but they called a prayer meeting, prayed and fasted about it, and a couple days later, and the next day, whatever it was, people showed up and said, listen, we need rocks and rubble and stone to, for another building project, we will pay you if you allow us to knock down that mountain and we will remove it. So not only did the mountain move, but that church got paid, which allowed them to put the car park in. Now, it's probably different than the way you imagined this verse coming to pass, right? We think of the mountain literally picking up and floating over into the into an ocean somewhere, into the sea. Which it wouldn't surprise me in the tribulation if maybe there aren't some things like that that might happen. But, but that being said, you see the point that Jesus is making. These insurmountable obstacles. If you apply the promises of God, even when it looks as if you're failing, it looks as if the promise isn't going to be fulfilled because you, you ask, you didn't receive. You seek, you didn't find. You knock and it didn't open. Right? But when Jesus taught about prayer, he, he gave one parable where a man had to come. He came in the middle of the night and he knocked, didn't get the answer. He knocked again, didn't get it. Knocked again, he kept knocking. And he says because of his importunity, which means his persistence, he didn't quit. He didn't lose faith that the door on which I'm knocking will eventually open. Verse 20 at the end, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now, let's be careful. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Do you see how people can get carried away very quickly here and say, oh, well, if that's the case, 
then I want a million rand and I want to stop wearing a mask when I go out in public and I want a BMW and I want to... You see how people could get kind of greedy with this. You know, I don't want to have to drive a car anymore. I just want to be able to fly everywhere. Nothing's impossible unto me. God never promised that sort of stuff. That's why I think it's important that you recognize what we're talking about when we say faith. You need to believe what God has said. Now, that being said, there is tremendous untapped potential power in prayer. Number one, we need to know what God has said. Number two, we do, we do need to make use of those promises. Not abusing them, but using them for His glory. Obviously not for our greed. Take your Bible, hold Matthew 17, look at James chapter 4. What we're studying in Matthew 17 teaches some wonderful lessons about prayer. The power of prayer. And I think there's some very deep thinking that needs to be done as a result of what we're studying tonight. I know myself all day long I've been trying to meditate on it. Let's get James 4 and verse number 2. James 4, 2. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war. Now watch this last part. Yet ye have not, because ye ask not. James said, you will put in so much effort to get what you want. But, if you just learn how to pray, you might be able to get a lot more out of life. This isn't prosperity preaching. I'm not talking about that. Have I made that clear? Verse 3 Prosperity preaching out. Verse 3, look at it. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. So, so that's off the list. But, James 4, 2, at the end of it, ye have not, because ye ask not. I wonder how many things there are that God would do for us if we just ask. Let me say it a different way. I wonder how many things God would do through us if we would ask. Now continue to hold James. We'll be right back to it in just a moment. Let's come back to Matthew uh, in verse 21. Matthew 17, 21. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. So gentlemen, the reason this didn't work for you is because I told you you could cast out devils, and then it didn't, it didn't work the way you'd seen it work in the past. Because this circumstance is a little more difficult. This child, a little more challenging. So that shook your faith. And you guys quit too early. You quit knocking too soon. You gave up. Nothing's impossible, but sometimes it requires more than just say the prayer and be done with it. Sometimes you've got to put a little more effort into it. Which begs the deeper question. If if God knows the problem of this child, the father has already no doubt talked to God, the disciples have talked to God, why is it that 
our prayers and even our fasting. How could it be that me depriving myself of food could in any way manipulate the spiritual world? How can my prayer make a difference? Now, when it comes to the subject of prayer, listen to this, we are we have to understand prayer by revelation. What I mean by that is you cannot study prayer in the natural realm. You can't. Prayer is something relegated to the spiritual realm. It exists in the spirit world, spiritual world. And therefore, we need God, we need Jesus to tell us how prayer works and what our role is in prayer. Does God, did God have power to cast out these devils? Sure. Then why, did his, why does he need us to pray at all? If God knows about suffering going on in the world, what difference does it make if we pray? Shouldn't God just automatically go and fix everything? Now, that's how some people... Some people see this as one of God's faults, and therefore some people don't believe in God because they see this idea as... as uh, the idea of God has a shortcoming. Why is there evil in the world? If there's a good God and an all-powerful God, why doesn't He fix everything? And I believe the answer to that lies in this. God, when He created us and when He created the beings that exist in the spirit world, He created them as free agents. We all have free will. But... You've heard, forgive me for the Spider-Man reference, with great power comes great responsibility. As free agents, right, we have a choice. We are, we are influenced by everything around us. But ultimately, we have to choose. Every individual has to choose. Every angel has to choose. But we can influence each other. I dare say you can even influence God. When my child comes to me and says, Dad, please do this, please do that, I'm their dad. I already plan to take care of them. I already plan to do as much as needs to be done for my child. But when my child comes to me and says, Dad, please, this is important to me, then as their father, I will pay closer attention to that. It's not that I was lacking in love or lacking in power or not willing to do it to begin with, but I take into account what my child sees as important and the fact that they keep coming to me about it does play into the decision I make. And when we look at prayer, we have to understand that the condition of our heart, the earnestness of our heart, does move the heart of God. It does make a difference in prayer. How can me, how is it that I, praying and fasting, can make a difference in the spiritual world? I am telling God, I'm showing God how important this other situation is to me. And therefore, move God to do even more in that circumstance than He was already doing. Not that He wasn't doing enough. He had already made everything, everything was available to the people involved so that they could get the help they needed. I'm asking God to do more. Say so then, well then, doesn't that mean that we are responsible for, the, for the, the outcomes of the people around us? Yes, to a certain extent you are. And you knew that already. 
Your behavior can affect people. Right? Paul said this, Awake to righteousness, sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Many times did Paul tell the people, straighten up your life, wake up, because you're affecting the people around you. The same is true even in the spiritual realm. Our prayers make a difference in the spiritual realm. So how do you know this? How can we be sure of this? Revelation, Jesus said so. Jesus, in this case, in Matthew 17, said, you see here, guys, when it gets really tough, when the spiritual world is given a lot of problems, because some unclean spirits are stronger and more wicked than others. Right? We, we already learned this in Matthew 12. Sometimes it requires more effort. Let me show you in James chapter 5, look at verse number 16. James 5, 16. This is your attendance code for this evening. James 5 and verse 16. James says, Confess your faults one to another, pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The fervency with which you pray makes a difference. And that's where fasting comes in. It shows just how serious you are about the matter. The, the illustration I use to support this, um, this idea of, of prayer making a difference is Abraham negotiating with the Lord. Take your Bible. Come back to Genesis. Let me show you the verse. Genesis chapter 19. Uh, you know that Abraham went to the Lord on Lot's behalf and said, Oh God, please, are you going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, and the answer is yes, I'm going to wipe them out. He said, What if there are 50 righteous in the town? Are you still going to wipe it out? Surely, I mean, the judge of all the earth will do right. If there are 50 righteous people, you're not going to burn the thing to the ground. And God said, okay, if I find 50, I won't do it. And Abraham thought about it and said, what about, what about 40? What about 30? And they just, you know how it goes. He negotiated him down to 10. Look at that. The Lord kept changing his mind based on Abraham's persistence. Now look at Genesis 19, verse 27. This is after Sodom and Gomorrah has been destroyed. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. That's what Abraham sees. We never read where Abraham saw Lot again. But he did see Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. But look at the next verse. Verse 29, And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered who? He remembered Abraham. That God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. You know why Lot got out alive? Because God remembered that conversation with Abraham. It wasn't because God remembered Lot. said, hey, I, I had this plan from the beginning to save Lot. He, God made that decision based on Abraham's prayer. So what do we know about prayer? How do we know it's effective? We know about the spiritual realm because Jesus has told us about it. We know about the afterlife because Jesus revealed it to us. These are matters of revelation. We can't study it in the natural realm. So I trust that my prayers make a difference. And sometimes we've got to pray a little harder. Guys, this isn't to say that everything around us is all our fault. 
right? Don't get carried away and start putting false conviction on yourself and say, the reason people go to hell, it's all on me. No, no. They are free agents as well. They have to make a choice. You just do your part. You do your part. You know what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2? He said, the will of God is for all men to be saved. But in Romans 10, Paul said, my prayer to God and my heart's desire is for Israel to be saved. Paul knew it's the will of God for everybody to be saved. That didn't stop Paul from praying. He didn't say, well, since God wants everybody saved, God's on the job, he'll do everything necessary, so I'll just back off. No, no. Paul said, God, this is important. Please save my brethren. Give me a chance to witness to him. Open another door. Give him another shot. Show him a little more. He prayed for him because he knew. He has to do what he as an individual free agent can do. This is part of God giving us free will. He knew it's a package deal. If you're going to have a choice, then with that choice comes the responsibility to do something to influence others to make the right choice. This is all part of it. That is why we're included in this spiritual battle. All right, so let's move on now. Matthew 17, verse 22. It says, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, this is something Jesus had recently revealed to them back in chapter 16, right? Verse 21. And then in chapter 17, Moses and Elijah, they spoke with Jesus about his decease that would happen at Jerusalem. And now Jesus is telling them again, guys, just reminding you, I'm going, I'm going to be betrayed. Verse 23, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. So guys, I'm, I'm going to be sold out. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise up. And I have underlined in my Bible their response. And they were exceeding sorry. I find it interesting in Matthew 16, when Jesus first said it to him, Peter initially said, not so, Lord. That's not going to happen. We'll, st- we'll put a stop to that. Now we know how that turned out. Here, they didn't say anything. They were just very sorry to hear that. But then Jesus one more time is going to say this in Matthew 20. If you want to just quickly look at it, verses 17, 18, 19. Jesus spells it out for him. Look at verse 19. He shall, shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. What did the disciples say to that? Nothing. We, we read of no response. It's illustrative of how we deal with the story of the gospel. I think there's good preaching in this. Good, good preaching, right? I'm, I'm not trying to make a doctrinal statement about why the disciples did or didn't say anything, but when we first hear the gospel, we're real excited about it. We've got to do something about it. And then the next time we hear it, oh, shame, shame. Yeah, that was, that's too bad. And then we keep hearing it, and all of a sudden, we grow weary of hearing it. And I've heard that before. And we, we, we get to the point where we grow numb to it. We don't want to get there. Back to Matthew 17, verse 24. We'll talk more about their response as we go on in the further chapters. Verse 24, And when they were come to Capernaum, They that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Now, in chapter 22, we're going to deal with this in depth when the Herodians come asking about paying taxes to Caesar and so forth. But it's worth mentioning here, obviously. They're trying to catch Peter and the Lord indirectly to say, Do you guys pay taxes? They're trying to 
find out if Jesus is, if, if they can find fault with Jesus' testimony to say, ah, you're against the government, because now they have something to report. They came and said, does the master pay tribute? Now, tribute, we can think of as taxes, right? But tribute is technically a little different than taxes. Tribute is something you give to show that you're in submission. It can be a gift of some sort. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a tax. A tax could be something separate. Um, but it falls under the same category. Verse 25 is something given towards the government. Verse 25, he saith, yes. Simple answer, go on, move on. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him. We might say Jesus anticipated or Jesus, uh, he went before. Jesus was a, a step ahead. Even though Jesus wasn't there when that conversation took place, he knew what had happened. This is a slight show of his omniscience. And he's going to tell Peter exactly how to handle it and, and how to think about this situation. Jesus, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? So the idea is, if, if a king orders the people to give tribute or custom, pay taxes, his family, the king's family, is exempt. But everybody else, anybody not in the king's family, they have to pay the taxes. So the strangers. Peter saith unto him of strangers, which is obvious answer. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. Right, they are. They're exempt from the tax. Now, Jesus, I believe he's framing this teaching, this statement, around the idea of he is the son of God, and God is the owner of all. He's the sovereign of all. So... Everybody should be showing tribute, paying tribute to God. Now, in that sense, Jesus owes nothing to anyone. He is the Son of God. He is exempt. He shouldn't be paying this. Verse 27, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money." that taking given to them for me and thee. So go pay the tribute. Technically speaking, Jesus didn't owe anything to anyone. But for testimony's sake, pay the tribute. Is it a sin to pay the tribute? No. And this falls very much in line with what we learned Sunday night from Romans chapter 14. Jesus could have pushed the envelope, so to speak, and said, listen, I'm, I'm the Son of God. I owe, I owe no tribute to anyone. And doctrinally, that's true. He had a point. But he also knew that if he goes down that path, the people around him, society around him, they're not going to understand it that way. And they're going to see this as him being rebellious. So rather than offend them, causing them to stumble, that's what the word offend, mean, uh, offend means, rather than causing them to get confused and stumble at that, he says, you know what, there's nothing wrong with paying the tribute down here on earth, paying it to this king. There's nothing wrong with being in subjection to 
the powers that be. We learned that in Romans 13. So, Peter, I just want you to know the doctrinal truth of it is that we're free. As, as the Son of God, I'm free. We don't, we, I, I don't need to pay, but we're going to pay it anyway. And then there's an extra lesson tacked onto this. Jesus didn't move around with money. And we, we know that Judas held the bag, right? The disciples had some money, but Jesus himself didn't carry money with him, as far as we can tell. And whatever the case was, however their financial situation was on an ongoing basis, at this point in time, they didn't have money for the tribute. And Jesus tells them, go catch this fish. Now, Peter's a fisherman. He knows how fishing works. He says, you put a hook in the water. Take up the fish that first cometh up. Are we to assume that that they put bait on the hook, or is this an empty hook? Because that's even more impressive. But let's assume even that you put bait on the hook and that he just catches the fish in a natural type of way. The fact that you find enough money in the mouth of the fish, a coin, there are very few fish. There are fish that have a mouth wide enough to open up and swallow a coin, but not too many. And the first fish you catch has the money in its mouth, whew, that'll get your attention. I, I only see a practical lesson in this, although there's something deep down in me that says there's more to it. There's something doctrinal or prophetical about this. But this is Peter's profession. God can take what you see as mundane every day, get up, go to work. God can, even in those things, in your mundane everyday job, He can provide for you in great ways, ways that you don't expect even, beyond just the paycheck. Sometimes God will use those everyday things that you go through to take care of needs. You don't see how it's going to work, but God will make it work out. So I I, I see the very practical lesson in what's happening here. Like I said, there's something deep down in me that says there's a little bit more to that. And uh, yeah, I've often, I've often tried to work out what that might be, and I will continue to meditate on that, try to figure that out, but we'll have to leave it there for this evening. All right, I hope that's helped you understand this chapter. I hope you put in some extra effort into your prayer life. I know this has certainly encouraged me to do so. I, I don't want to get to heaven and find out that God could have done more if I just would have asked. So that being said, let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for this wonderful reminder that we have a responsibility. Even though it gets tough and it requires more work, Lord, help us to pray fervently, earnestly, effectually. God, it will always be the case that we could do more. We'll always have a place to think that. Really, that thought doesn't help us much. Lord, if I could just ask you to please teach us to pray. Like you did for Peter, James, and John, manifesting your glory. Lord, we sure would like to have a taste of that. I know we can't spend every day, all day up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we sure would like to have a glimpse of it. And Lord, even tonight... Wouldn't be a problem at all if we got to see that glorified face tonight. Please, Lord, call us home. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.